0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana lawyer, senior reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Indiana Northern District Senior Judge Robert Miller Jr. He's set to retire at the end of the month, so we talked about his career and even found a way to work in Notre Dame football. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with Managing Editor Daniel Carson to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, August 23rd, and these are your headlines. I'll start us off with an update about a suspended judge. St. Joseph County Probate Judge Jason A. Chickawicks accepted responsibility for ethical violations laid out in a statement of circumstances and conditional agreement for discipline. He also said in a personal statement that it, quote, never occurred to me, end quote, that his actions could be interpreted as a violation. The Indiana Supreme Court suspended Chickawicks for 45 days and said his actions appeared to be willful. The conduct in question is related to Chickawicks serving as trustee of a friend's foundation. Chickawicks became the man's power of attorney before taking the bench and then remained in that role after being elected in 2018. He also became the foundation's sole trustee before taking the bench. He then used that position to make anonymous donations, totaling about $160,000 to fund renovation projects at the county's Juvenile Justice Center and to purchase vehicles for a court-appointed special advocate program. Some of the renovations and the vehicle purchases went through businesses owned by his father. In his personal statement, Chickawicks emphasized that no taxpayer money was used for the renovations or vehicles. He also said he did research after his election and determined it wouldn't be unethical to continue serving as the man's power of attorney. Chickawix's 45-day suspension is effective September 5th without pay, but with automatic reinstatement effective October 20th. Now we'll go to you, Daniel, for news about a city employee suing Valparaiso.
1: Kathy Greilich has been the city of Valparaiso's human resources director since 2013. She is now suing the city. Mayor Matt Murphy and former Administrator Mike Jessen, Organizational Development Solutions and its president, Decilia Rossetti, for constitutional violations, gender and pay discrimination, harassment, retaliation, and defamation. Last year, the city conducted a wage study and found that the female department heads were being paid 31% less than their male counterparts. Graylick expressed concern to the city administrator that the city needed to apply the wage study findings to remove any gender-based pay disparities among the city employees. However, with the 4% cap on pay raises, the female department heads remained more than $8,000 below the midpoint of the study's salary range on average, while male department heads moved to $1,529 above the midpoint on average. Even with Graylick's salary increase, she was still the lowest paid Executive B employee for the city. Meanwhile, when Grelick had hip replacement surgery in the spring of 2022, she was not informed about Family and Medical Leave Act leave, nor did the city have someone cover for her while she was gone. Two months after her surgery, the city hired Organizational Development Solutions to audit the HR department. Greilich was not informed of the audit and claims no male department head had their department audited while being excluded from the decision. The complaint goes on to allege that Organizational Development Solutions and Rossetti made defamatory remarks about Greilich and her department in its audit report and executive summary. Afterwards, Greilich was informed that the city would be hiring a chief human resources officer and welcomed her to apply. The role was given to someone else and she was informed her current position would be eliminated by the end of December. Greylich's complaint was filed August 15th in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District. It alleges violations of the Equal Pay Act, FMLA interference and retaliation, equal protection claims against all city defendants, violations of Greylick's First Amendment rights, and defamation. City officials did not respond to requests for comment.
0: Now turning to another lawsuit, Daniel, you've been following a case related to the law prohibiting human sexuality instruction in grades K through 3. What's the latest there?
1: An Indianapolis teacher challenging a new Indiana law that prohibits instruction on human sexuality in grades K through 3 has filed an appeal with the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and wants to overturn a federal judge's denial of her motion for a preliminary injunction. Kayla Smiley filed the notice of appeal August 8th. In July, Judge James P. Hanlon of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana issued an order denying the preliminary injunction motion filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana on behalf of Smiley. Smiley is arguing that House Enrolled Act 1608 is unconstitutionally vague under the 14th Amendment because the terms, quote, human sexuality, end quote, and, quote, instruction, end quote, do not give fair notice of, quote, what she may say and where she may say it, end quote. She also argues it violates the First Amendment by unconstitutionally restricting her speech. In his order, Hanlon said the injunction was denied because Smiley had not shown some likelihood of succeeding on the merits of her claims. He wrote that Smiley faced a heavy burden to show that HEA 1608 is unconstitutional on its face rather than as applied to specific speech. Stevie Pactor, an ACLU of Indiana staff attorney, told me an appellate's brief is due to the Seventh Circuit by September 18. She said it would take about 50 days for the case to be fully briefed. Quote, it could be heard in December or maybe early into the new year, Pactor said of the appeal.
0: Thanks, Daniel. Going up to the Northern District, the ACLU of Indiana is challenging a new state law that prohibits a person from approaching within 25 feet of a law enforcement officer after the officer has ordered the person to stop. The ACLU says the law violates the First Amendment by giving police quote, discretion end quote, to prohibit people from approaching them, even if the citizens aren't interfering with police. The complaint was brought on behalf of a man in South Bend who records police activity and posts the videos to YouTube. The lawsuit says the man and others in a crowd were twice told to move back at the scene of a shooting, even though they were already more than 25 feet away, and one officer threatened that they would go to jail if they didn't comply. The ACLU is asking the court to declare the law unconstitutional and enter a preliminary injunction in joining the enforcement. Okay, coming back to you, Daniel, we have news out of Fort Wayne about one of the first lawsuits following Indiana's new statute on physician non-compete agreements. What can you tell us?
1: A little more than a month after a new state law on physician non-compete agreements went into effect, An Allen County physician has been granted a temporary restraining order to stop his former employer from enforcing a non-compete clause after he terminated his employment agreement for cause. Dr. David Lankford, an Allen County pediatric intensivist, filed the lawsuit against his former employer, Lutheran Medical Group. The temporary restraining order prohibits Lutheran Medical Group and any of its subsidiaries, agents, servants, employees, consultants, attorneys, affiliates, and any other individuals or entities' actions in concert with them from enforcing or threatening to enforce Lankford with the non-compete clause. Lankford alleges that Lutheran continues to interfere with his attempts to provide care to children at another health care system in Fort Wayne. In August 2022, Lutheran announced it would begin laying off its pediatric hospitalists and expected the pediatric intensivists to cover the work that would have been done by the pediatric hospitalists. Lankford asked to renegotiate his employment agreement based on the additional duties, but Lutheran declined. According to the complaint, Lankford wasn't offered additional pay or support when his patient volume increased. Meanwhile, the state statute prohibiting physician non-competes went into effect July 1st, and states that when a physician terminates employment for cause, the non-compete agreement is unenforceable.
0: Thanks, Daniel. Switching gears to the world of child welfare, Cindy Booth, the longtime leader of Child Advocates, will retire next year after 30 years with the nonprofit. Under Booth's leadership, Child Advocates has won local and national awards for its child advocacy efforts, according to a news release. The nonprofit is viewed as a leader in advocating for direct representation of kids in the child welfare system. It also recently launched a direct representation practicum at the IU Maurer School of Law in Bloomington, which I covered in April. Booth is a 1991 graduate of the IU McKinney School of Law. She joined Child Advocates as its first full-time staff attorney in 1994 and was named CEO in 1996. In a statement, Booth said, quote, Child Advocates has been a recognized leader in child welfare because of our experienced and compassionate staff, board, and volunteers. It's been a great privilege to have worked alongside such amazing colleagues throughout my career to create a better path for children, end quote. Booth's successor is expected to be announced early next year. To round out this week's headlines, I'll let you know about a story we're working on about how lawsuits might impact the 2024 elections. Multiple court opinions have been handed down recently in Indiana regarding the state's election laws. First, a Southern District judge upheld Indiana's requirement for independent political and minor party candidates to obtain ballot access via petition, finding that requirement is not unconstitutional. Then, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed a district court finding that an Indiana law allowing voters over 65 to vote by absentee ballot is not unconstitutional. Voters who are younger than 65 have to fall under one of 12 categories in order to qualify to vote absentee. As the state inches closer to the 2024 elections, what does the state of voting in Indiana look like? Plus, what do these decisions mean for Indiana voters? You can read that story in our August 30th issue. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, the indianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview.
1: Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com.
0: For this week's extended interview, I'm joined over Zoom by Indiana Northern District senior Judge Robert Miller Jr. Judge Miller is set to retire at the end of the month after almost 40 years on the federal bench. He's been a senior judge since 2016. Thanks for joining me today, Judge Miller.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So to start off, what's been going through your head as you prepare to step away from the court? I think it may be
2: a function of having done this so long, but I'm more looking back than I am looking forward because uh, the, the experiences that I remember are ones that I'll never never have again. So uh, I'm, unlike a lot of people who are heading into retirement, I might, I'm, I'm thinking backwards. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> well, toward the end of this, I do want to look forward with you. But speaking of looking back, I guess just... What are some of those memories that stand out to you that you're going to carry with you?
2: Oh, I'd say the experiences uh, in trials. I think the, the jury trial is probably the, the, the high point of any uh, trial judge's career. I had a couple, had a few very interesting ones that will stay with me uh, and, and have noticed the absence in recent years of, of many jury trials. I've also had had the wonderful experience of being able to participate in in different things outside my courtroom through the the judiciary. Uh, there's there's a lot of people don't know this exists, but there's uh, it's, it's like a court called the Judicial Panel on Multi District Litigation, where when several cases involving the same thing are in multiple courts. The panel decides whether to take those cases and put them in front of one judge for all uh, pretrial matters. And I served on that panel for eight years and handled a, a few of those dockets. And I think that's probably the the high point of my career because it gives you into the picture of the whole judiciary. Uh, I take cases from Alaska, Hawaii, wherever, and uh, I try to find a judge that can handle them well.
0: Now I know a lot of people. They'll call this time bittersweet. That's the most popular word, I think. Is that true for you?
2: In a way, I'm looking forward to it. I've been doing this for quite a while. I I had thought about sticking around a little longer, but last year, my my wife, my daughter, and my granddaughter all had COVID at the same time. I wondered why this many people I love have a potentially fatal disease. I feel like I should keep going to work. (laughs) So. Uh, I think all in all, it's a good it's a good idea. But I'll miss it.
0: Did you have any other like aha moments, or was that the one?
2: That was the one. That was the only one. I, if if I waited for just a, another two and a half years or so, I would I would have been a judge for fifty years. Not that you get a bonus or anything for that, but so few of us have a chance to do that. It seemed like something to shoot for. But then uh, last last summer, that seemed far less important.
0: Was fifty on your mind before then? Sure. Sure. Again, it, it's,
2: you know, not many people can reach it. So I, I thought it would be a good idea just to be because I could.
0: Now, I know you have a courtroom in South Bend named in your honor. There's a portrait, there's a plaque. What's it like to have a courtroom named after you?
2: Well, it's a, it's a thrill. I worked in that courtroom for many years, for the first five years or so that I worked there. In my mind, it was still Judge Grant's courtroom. And uh, for the last uh, five years or so, I've, I've treated it as Judge Lippey's courtroom. He's the active judge and he has priority on it. But it is, it is a great honor. Uh, in, in a sense, we're just raising the stakes for our kids. My father was very involved in uh, veterans, homeless veterans particularly. And there's a, a building name for him uh, in South Bend. And my wife uh, was on the local superior court and ran the drug court. And there's a recovery house name for her. So this is just one more, <laughs> one more change in the level of the bar for our, our children, I guess.
0: Now, as you look back, and I think you, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but are there any memorable cases that stand out to you? And it doesn't matter why, but just anything memorable.
2: The most memorable, I think, because of the, the impact and how differently they were tried, uh was one I had when I was a superior court judge in 1984, a uh, defendant named a, a defendant who had killed his parents uh, with an ax. And uh, it was the, the talk of the community. We sequestered the jury. I had to work around Notre Dame home games to be sure we could find hotel rooms for the jury. It was a very emotional trial. Very, uh, We had six days a week because of the sequestered jury, so we could get them home as quick as we could. And, and that's a very memorable case to me. I had another case that was not a jury trial uh, in the federal court, where there was a lawsuit over the grill on the AM General Hummer II. Uh, the people that then owned Jeep said that it had too much resemblance to the Jeep's grill and wanted to keep uh, AM General from using that particular grill. The interesting thing is, if you trace it all back, they have a common ancestor. Uh, And uh, so who got the grill first was an interesting issue. But we had uh, giant grills in the courtroom as demonstrative evidence. People had to walk around them to get in. Uh, The the jury box was filled with lawyers. I joked to my staff that if we took a 10 minute recess instead of a five minute recess. I couldn't begin to calculate what that was costing people with that number of lawyers. But, uh, that was a very memorable one too.
0: Now I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but you mentioned Notre Dame football and now I got to ask just how often throughout your career, do you think you had to consult the fighting Irish football schedule as a part of your business with the court?
2: It was something that would be in the back of my mind when I was scheduling things in the, uh, in the autumn, uh, trying to maybe set something for earlier in the week, so so uh, lawyers didn't have to get in and out on Friday. It has a, a big impact around here. Uh, a lot of a lot of planes coming in and out, and the hotels are booked from, uh, from Thursday through Saturday. So trying trying to work with people. That's the only time I've really had to look for it for a trial setting
0: Now, I read uh, that as an undergrad, you weren't sure that you didn't want to become a lawyer, and maybe you felt a little more adamantly than that, but I'm trying to hedge my bet a little bit here. Why did you have that feeling back then?
2: That was the only thing I was sure I wasn't going to do. My father was a lawyer, and he would take me to the office with him on Saturday mornings when, when I was about 10, and there may be something less interesting for a ten-year-old than going to a lawyer's office on Saturday morning, but I still haven't run across it. And I thought that had to be the most boring job in the world. Then in college, I took a, a course uh, on the First Amendment that really inspired me, and started thinking. As I got into, started my senior year, what am I ready to go out and do? And couldn't come up with anything. So law school seemed like uh, like a good step. My dad was as astonished as
0: anybody when I told him. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. As a 10-year-old, what would you do in that office to kill time?
2: He had, I remember, I don't, don't know if they still even make these or, or why they made them then, but he had these pencils. And one side was a blue blue lead and the other side was red lead. So I would do two-color drawings for, I don't know how long we'd be there. It felt like days, but probably a couple of hours. And it was an unlegal so that was
0: basically it. Now, as you said, you 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 eventually get into law school. What gets you onto the bench then after that? It's kind of a
2: long story. Indiana in 1973 had adopted what was then called the Missouri Plan for four counties, St. Joe County being one of them, where instead of running as a Republican or Democrat, uh, there would be a local nominating commission consisting of uh, three local lawyers, three local non-lawyers and a justice of the Supreme Court. And people had to apply and the applications would be public. They also got rid of the city courts in South Bend of Mishawaka and created a, two new Superior Court judgeships. So the first time that this nominating commission went into a, oh, I left out both the nominating commission and the governor, who would then appoint the the three names the commission would send for a vacancy were not allowed to take party party affiliation into account. Now, as a practical matter, of course, Republican governors tend to talk to Republicans for advice. Democratic governors tend to talk to Democratic, Democrats for advice. And so down through the years, there has been a tendency, uh, I, I think, probably a, it slightly favors whichever party the governor's in. But this was the first time, through, and nobody was sure how it was going to work. And I suspect that there were some lawyers who didn't want their clients to know they were applying for a judgeship, but nobody knew how it would work. There was a a South Bend lawyer who had been involved uh, with the bar exam, one of the the law examiners, and was head of the local nominating commission and was trying a case in the courtroom of Judge Robert Grant, whom I was clicking. And I asked him how the nominations were or the applications were going. And he said he was worried they wouldn't have enough for two vacancies. He said, you should apply. So I did. And uh, as things played out, uh, here I am. <laughs> so, but I, I did it. And, and people think this is that I'm exaggerating this. But I believed in that. Seriously. Uh, I found it made a lot. My, I said for 10 years after that, I could never figure out what it how you could tell a Republican child support order from a Democratic child support order. You know, most of what judges do has nothing to do with partisan politics, And uh, so I thought this was a, I, I would, I did not want to see this system crash and burn on its first, first time uh, down the runway. And that's why I threw my name in so they'd have enough. Um,
0: now, if you hadn't had that experience, any guesses on where your career may have taken you?
2: My plan had been to try to become a public defender in a, a more urban area. Uh, I do remember interest in Boston, San Francisco, and of all places, Buffalo, New York. And I can't explain that, <laughs> but that's one of the places I had my eye on. And then after doing that for a few years, uh, to try to become a, a prosecutor somewhere, and then see where that left me. But I did want to do trial work. I wanted to be in the apartment.
0: And did you ever? early in your career, maybe think like, gosh, should I, should I do that? Should I go try to do that? Do I regret it? Anything like that?
2: I have never regretted uh, becoming a judge and remaining a judge. It's been a a daily joy.
0: So I know you go uh, into the St. Joseph Superior Court and obviously now you've been on the federal court. You've spent your whole life or excuse me, your whole career then on the bench, Right. right? Yes. And so that's a, pretty unique position to have then i'm sure young lawyers young judges they they come to you and say uh what's your advice what would you tell me to do when that happens what is your advice two
2: things one is be uh
0: scrupulously honest
2: with courts and uh an opposing party is consistent with your obligation to your client so that you're known as a person of your word and be civil uh that this, there's too much there's enough pressure in the law it's a lawyer or as a judge because it's more on the lawyer there, there's enough uh, enough pressure without being a jerk to other people and having other people be a jerk to you and that's why I think if, you're, if you are honest and civil uh, you can go far but that will get you far in the law I don't think new lawyers realize how much judges talk about lawyers and if one lawyer, maybe first court appearance, goes in front of judge X and uh, misstates the fact and the judge thinks it was intentional or misstates the law. And the judge thinks it's a, it's around the courthouses, because I'll include state and federal with that, before you know it. And it takes years to recover. And I, and I worry that young lawyers, especially what we see about lawyers on TV in the fictional settings, uh, I don't think they recognize the importance of being honest with, with the courts.
0: Looking back on on your time in law school, and you, you're talking about the advice that you got, or excuse me, um, the advice that you give. And, and how does that compare to the advice that you got? Well,
2: so civility was assumed. This is before we hit the Rambo lawyers and the, the uh, uh, judge television shows where everybody, once the other guy yelled at. Uh, it, so civility was pretty much assumed. We were basically told, read the law, especially as we were coming out of law school, because they told us read the advance sheets, because that's where the questions for the Indiana bar exam would come from. Now, of course, it's not all all Indiana. It's not drawn from the advance sheets, and we couldn't possibly read a nation's word to advance sheets. But those are the, the things I remember being told, read the law, don't go into court without having read the statute you're dealing with. Uh, and I have to say, I saw some lawyers who didn't didn't keep that advice in mind before they came into court, uh, and it was. I, I wish they had gotten the advice I had.
0: Are you able to to say? Is there maybe more pressure on lawyers today than back when you were coming out of law school? And I only ask because of the advances in technology. There are more law students who you know you were considering of work as a public work as a public defender, um, which I don't think is something you would hear as often today. And that's something I talk to older lawyers about is, you know, the differences between then and now and if lawyers now are are maybe under a, a little bit more pressure or at least different pressure.
2: Well I haven't had to navigate the pressures of a of a law firm. So I can't say for sure, but it's my sense that they're if if not more, the pressures are different. Uh, when I came when I came into the practice of law briefly uh, before going on the bench, the the largest law firm in town in South Bend had 13 people, and to do that you had to count two people who were in Elkhart, who were who were not technically in town. Uh, you did not have big firms. You had uh, we were only two or three years removed from minimum fee schedules that bar associations would maintain, where you had to charge a certain amount. Uh, so you didn't get it into there was a prof- the idea that we were a profession we didn't want rate cutting and and uh, price wars. Uh, on the other hand, as we moved from that setting into the 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 big wall mega firm, uh, and if you're not in one you're you're probably competing with one. Uh, the pressure for billable hours uh, uh, would be far different uh, the the twenty four hour communication that you're you're, uh, I, we didn't have cell phones that would have give us email and text at four in the morning. So I think it's a, a different kind of pressure. Still, though, since we didn't have 2,000 partners worldwide helping fill our paychecks, the lawyers were pretty much responsible for what they bring home. And uh, so I think, I don't want to suggest there was no pressure back then, because there was plenty of pressure, but I think it's a very different pressure now from what uh, new lawyers face.
0: Okay. That's consistent with what I hear when I ask that question of anybody else. I told you we'd come back to this. I know you said you're doing a little more looking back than you are looking forward, but I'm going to ask you to look forward. What are some of those things you're looking forward to in retirement?
2: Well, I hope we can travel. We have uh, two two grandchildren, two and under, and, and uh, so we're we're getting started in that, and they only live a half hour away. I, I don't really know beyond that. Uh, I love golf, but Really, I'm playing quite a bit of golf on senior status. So people say you can play golf now, and I'm not really sure I can. <laughs> That's putting some pressure on me. So I'll feel my way along uh, and see what I want to do. I think I'm going to miss writing because on the federal side, uh, we write so much. And part of me is wondered if I should start trying to put some thoughts together, just not that I have anything profound. I, I wouldn't. I would say i don't have much expertise but i have a lot of experience and maybe i could figure out a way to, to, to write something that might help help others see things a little different way as far as how courts operate that sort of thing i don't know that's again that, that's three weeks down the road
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes august 31st is your last day correct right, right. and I, you brought up writing and so that led me to Um, A question that you maybe answered, but is something like a book in the future or anything like that? Well, I don't know.
2: I might start trying to put that together and see. You know, I wrote for not exactly the same kind of thing, but about 40 years on Indiana evidence law uh, and uh, that West has found another another author to replace me. It wouldn't be that foreign to me, but uh, I don't know. I just don't know. I haven't pinned down what I'm going to do or when. Mostly, if I can expand golf from playing on Tuesdays and Thursdays.
0: <laughs> that sounds Tuesdays good enough. And
2: Wednesdays. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds perfectly fine to me, anyway. But we certainly uh, wish you the best in your retirement. Thank you very much. All right, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again for joining me, Judge Miller.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been good I've enjoyed it.
0: As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.